0: joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Malcolm Harkins. So Malcolm, if you want to say hi and give a little bit of background on yourself.
1: Hey, thanks, Tony. Happy to be here. Uh, Malcolm Harkins. Uh, I recently just uh, joined an early stage cybersecurity company called Epiphany Systems as chief security and trust officer and that was announced and the company launched uh, going in black hat a few weeks ago. Uh, prior to that, I did uh, 15, 16-month stint at an early-stage web application security company in doing similar things, Chief Security and Trust Officer. Uh, Prior to that, I was Chief Security and Trust Officer at Silence uh, that was acquired by BlackBerry um, back a few years ago. Prior to that, my life was pretty simple. I spent 24 years at Intel, um, straight out of graduate school, first in business roles. And then I tripped my way into security uh, almost 20 years ago, um, October-ish of of, uh, 2001.
0: That that's that's actually kind of funny because my my background was was general IT like I came in doing you know, I was like a one man IT department at uh, McCann Erickson Detroit uh, for a while then I was a, a, a th- the, the head of a three man department at a, a dot com you know startup uh, again you know just in Detroit but I was doing IT stuff and then I joined EDS again doing I was my focus was Microsoft Cluster Server. Um, I was going around to General Motors, you know, facilities and helping, you know, implement Microsoft Cluster Server on these, you know, mission-critical, you know, manufacturing systems. Um, And I happened to, as I was doing that, EDS was offering to pay the bill for, you know, training and certification. So I went ahead and got my MCSE. Uh, I don't even remember what that stands for. Microsoft Certified something, something um yep. but that happened to be at the same time that general motors had given eds this contract you know hired hired us for this gig to do security and the team lead of that group uh reached out because he wanted like he knew i didn't have a security background but he wanted someone with a solid windows background to be on the team to help them understand you know what they were doing or whatever and that's you know i, I just was like all right and it was it was kind of it. I wasn't unaware of security. Like you know, we we you know, I dealt with the I Love You virus when I was at uh, when I was at StoneAge dot com. Um, you know, so I you know, it, it's not like security wasn't a thing at all, but it was still very early stage. I mean, so we're you know, I'm talking about 2003. You know, I got into security.
1: Yeah, for me, I you know I'm uh, was a finance guy, procurement guy, business operations. Worked in in a var- variety of different business roles. Um, first start in Intel's IT organization in 1992, um, and then into other business units. And I I actually was the finance analyst that supported the small InfoSec team in the early 90s because they were part of the the group that I was supporting as a as a financial analyst. But you know, after 9-11 happened and Code Red and Nimda happened in the fall, summer of 2001, Andy Grove was still running Intel, just like his book Only the Paranoid Survive. He was, frankly, beating the shit out of a bunch of corporate officers to deal with the availability risk issues physically and logically. And Intel's chief information officer at the time, who I had known from my business role days because I had supported him, uh, when he was a, a director in the IT organization, called me up and asked me to run Security and Business Continuity. And I'm like, I, Doug, uh, love to help you. I don't know anything about security. He's like, that's fine. I got a bunch of security geeks who don't know anything about the business. They'll teach you and you'll teach them. And uh, like I said, that was 20 years ago and I've never left the space. Um, it it really became a fulfilling mission to try and um, manage and mitigate to the best of, of my abilities and the abilities of of the people who I worked with, to keep the organization out of harm's way, and then you know over time that that expanded um, at Intel till I oversaw the traditional infosec stuff, product security stuff, um, some other kind of ethic, public policy, all in that kind of technology risk space, whether it be the technology we used or the technology we created.
0: Well. Let's let let's start a conversation there based on. So you've been in you know in IT you've been in security for twenty years, as you know as have I in some way shape or form. I mean I went from being in the trenches to being purely a writer to now being, on the marketing side of security. Um, but you know one thing that, that you know I I like to get perspective from people who who've who've, who've been there to witness kind of the evolution and how things are. It's like, what are your thoughts on like, you know, how far have we come in 20 years and, you know, like, you know, sort, sort of the, well, if we've been doing this for 20 years, why haven't we, you know, solved the problem?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. So t- 20, almost 20 years ago, so six months into the role and I, have codified it in, in my two books that I published on managing risk and information security. So six months into the role the perspective the company had at that time is they'd give Malcolm money, budget, people, and he would go put controls in place. And then once we kind of invested at a higher level, we'd be able to dial it all back and the problem would be solved. That was an engineering culture's mindset. Um, Six months in, I drew a picture that I called the perfect form of risk. To simplify for Intel's executives and the CIO and a bunch of other things, what I foresaw happening, as I was learning from the security team and thinking out as I would have as a strategic financial planner, like I had grown up to be, about the cycles that were um, at, at the beginning stages of it, and how you know threats, exploited vulnerabilities affecting information assets. We know that side. My job is to put in place controls, but I drew this kind of hidden hand. Of cybersecurity that started with geopolitical nation states. Because nation states, even ahead of the California Breach Bill, ahead of all the privacy stuff, Sarbanes Oxley, other kind of legislative things that, that deal with um, potentially technology risk issues. I foresaw nation states. Increasing their legislative stuff that would touch technology, which would generate a business risk. But nation states are also threat actors and threat agents. So they're accelerating the threat actor and the vulnerability side. And then I foresaw the conflicts that arise that as I was putting more controls in place to get more assurance that Malcolm was Malcolm, his device was his device, uh, what he was doing and where he was doing it. Was an appropriate thing to do that I began gaining more behavior and identity information on users, which would then potentially run afoul of the privacy legislation that I start started seeing. So I drew this this picture that I that I called the perfect storm of risk. I saw this confluence of independent yet interdependent things brewing into a cyber storm of information risk, and the other critical component to all of this is information assets don't stay static, they're constantly changing, they're updating, that innovation and the usage models and the form factors continue to grow and Intel was at the heart of that creation, right? From silicon to um, computing and all of its different forms. And I'm like, look, this is a growing thing as IT continues its urban sprawl and then that's gonna fuel vulnerabilities. Just because you can't eliminate them, right? You, you know, you can't eliminate risk. You can do a good job of of mitigating them and preventing them as much as, as possible, and then you know, reacting to them when they occur. But I, but I drew this perfect storm of risk. Now, my 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 moral compass told me that that my obligation was one to understand that that Rubik's cube of risk as it would grow and morph and evolve, and then bring to bear the right capabilities to lower risk um, and manage it for the company. and And so I, my perspective is, unfortunately, I was right, and I think we've had this growing perfect storm of cybersecurity risk. Then the question becomes, why has that occurred? And I think there's a couple um, reasons for that. One, on the attacker side, we've made it too easy for them to attack. And and obviously there's incentives to do it because you you can, you know, finger point and say, well, I didn't do anything and, and cybercrime would evolve and all that stuff. So there's the threat actor side of it. But when you get back to the technology creation, technology management side of it, frankly, we've all done a, a crappy job of mitigating and managing those risks technology companies and even non-tech companies that they create technology have done so without adequate security development lifecycle and privacy by design hence we've had growing vulnerabilities because people have done a sloppy job and then on the internal management side for IT and infosec we've done a crappy job of of managing you know hygiene and identities and stuff like that and then the other aspect of the whole thing is the security industry has done a shitty job in in some cases the security industry has continued to sell and promote the use of of capabilities that don't sufficiently manage and mitigate the risk why because the security industry has a profit motivation to sell stuff and in some cases sell stuff that doesn't work because if they can make money on it they'll sell it
0: well so all of that great answer um i was going to say i i i ask that question not not every podcast but i ask that question somewhat often and it's a it's a fairly loaded question because you know there there's also like because because my 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 i have had people ask it you know so i've had people come to me and be like all right you know why 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 do we still have all these vulnerabilities there's all these you know, you know there's a breach in the headlines every single day there's a ransomware attack every single day like, what are you doing if you've been doing this for 20 years and all this stuff is still happening? And I'm like, all right, well, if if I was dealing with a static world, I would accept your argument. If, if, if it was the exact same technology and the exact same threats as 20 years ago, then yes, it would be inexcusable for me to not have figured out how to solve that. But it's not. It's constantly evolving and, and as you pointed out, constantly growing iot wasn't a thing 20 years ago now there's billions of devices out there um you know just the 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 the, just the expansion of the volume of devices and users who are on the internet today as opposed to 20 years ago and you know social media didn't exist 20 years ago um you know so so a, a lot changed and and it continues to change and and as you pointed out on the one hand, a lot of organizations and, 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 you know, a lot of companies do a really bad job of thinking about security at all and developing it into the into the product in the first place, um, especially when it comes to IoT. Um, yep. But even when they do, e- even if a company does it right, it's not going to be perfect. There will still be vulnerabilities. And so you know, as long as long as we keep making new technologies, there's going to be a new, new, new frontiers, and the attackers, for the most part, are fairly creative and innovative. At least some of them. I mean, some of them, you know, barely know what they're doing, and they're just you know hiring, you know, they're, they're hiring ransomware as a service to to just to get the job done. But the ones who are who are actively finding new ways, you know, like they're basically just as Intel or silence or microsoft or whoever have to look at the market landscape and figure out how to evolve and adapt to stay at the front of that that market landscape the attackers are running a business the same way and the attackers are running a business where they say oh silence is now doing this this and this how do i get around that you know what, what what's my what's my attack vector to bypass that that protection and so it's a constant like you know cat and mouse game and while i understand the frustration of some people to say well why why do we have to deal with this why is this still such a big problem all the things you pointed out i think i i think are true like if we if we could handle some of that building security in better handling the you know identity and access management better all of those things it would vastly improve it but it's never going to go away i don't think yeah just
1: no, I, I agree. It's a journey with no finish line. Um, but you know when I have that discussion come up, again, the simple fact of the matter, physically, logically, logically, heck, even in financial markets, you can't eliminate risk, right? Even holding cash, I still face risk, risk of inflation, right? Um right? So every way in aspects of life, you can't um, eliminate risk. There, there was a, a lady that I spent time with, Glennis Breckwell, who wrote a book on the psychology of risk that uh, um, I would talked with her when I was working on my first book. And, and there was an aspect of her book that I thought was really salient. Um, and it was written around physical risk, but I think the same attributes apply in, in the logical sense. Risk surrounds and envelops us. Without understanding it, we risk everything. Without capitalizing on it, we gain nothing. Right, a business is in place to take risks in order to make money. Right, um, a business has a lot of externalities that it can't control: financial market, pandemic, uh, you know, a bunch of things, employment, um, you know, physical events: a storm, a flood, an earthquake that can disrupt supply lines. But a good business manages and mitigates those risks so that regardless of externalities and things that are uncontrollable in the environment, they still survive and thrive and make profit. The thing that we've not done on the cybersecurity side is hold ourselves to the same level of accountability to deliver business outcomes, ones that are on a certain level of risk, Ones that are on total cost of controls and ones that are on and and you know some people disagree with me, but but the controls that we have today by and large in most organizations impede business velocity. They create friction and disrupt the user experience. They slow time to market. And and I call that control friction. And in a high control friction environment, what happens? The business and the user go around the controls. So there's three outcomes that a CISO needs to be held accountable to by their board, their organization, Um, uh, an outcome on risk, an outcome on total cost, and an outcome on control friction. And until we start measuring and holding ourselves accountable to real outcomes, recognizing just like in a business sense, you can forecast a revenue and a gross margin and sometimes not hit it for sometimes valid reasons, but over time, if you don't hit your P&L goals, of cash and revenue and gross margin and net income, you get fired. Why? Because you didn't achieve the business result. Um, And if we start doing that, and then CIOs and CISOs start holding their security vendors accountable for what? Enabling to hit those outcomes and punishing them when they don't. Don't buy crap from people who have sold you stuff for a few years that didn't work. Right. Um, There's a bunch of things that we can do if we look at this as an economics problem and start addressing it differently. And then the other thing that you mentioned about vulnerabilities, I agree, you can't eliminate being vulnerable, but I also believe that the hyper-focus we've had on vulnerability management on the one hand while good, on the other hand is distracting. There's a difference between being vulnerable and being exploitable from a component that's vulnerable to an exploitable path that creates the catastrophic material and significant event those two things are different the entrance and the initial compromise might be the vulnerability but the problem is we're not looking at the exploitable paths between that point of compromise that that may be vulnerable that we might never be able to fully mitigate holistically through the days you chain of all those steps and paths and connections and identities and all that stuff to something that creates the moment. Right. Um, and, and I think again, if we start saying, we're, we have to do vulnerability management and all that hygiene stuff, but we've got to look at the attack paths we have in our environment, find out where that pivot point of exploitability is and take action on that. If we do that, we'll be able to demonstrate a real risk reduction and better prioritize our focus which will lower our costs.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean I give, you know, from from my perspective, the, the first time I heard this this sort of angle on it was from uh George Kurtz when he was uh, at McAfee. Um but I had a conversation with him and we were talking about like Microsoft Patch Tuesday vulnerabilities. And he was the one who enlightened me to say, well, okay, you know, Microsoft comes out with the thing and they say, well, this is a critical vulnerability. And that's helpful for you to understand, okay, well, what does this mean kind of in an abstract? But you have to have the context of your environment. You have to, you know, like maybe it's not critical to you. You have to figure out, well, what systems is it on? What other mitigating controls do you have in place? Is it even public facing? And and prioritize accordingly. You can't just take Microsoft's word for it and say, okay, well, they said it's critical. So that's our top priority.
1: I, no, you're totally right. But the other challenge we've got is we also can't necessarily rely on... On, on the individuals in our company, because it's a highly manual effort. Microsoft says this, the press says that. Um, y- you pull a team together, and they argue on their differing perspectives, and we all have a bias, right? The data we pull from a particular system is biased. The the uh, um, perspective that uh, an individual that's worried about one aspect of security is going to have that bent and create a bias so you, you know and if you if you look at those biases create a misperception of the real risks and if you look at the misperception of a risk as a vulnerability how do you mitigate it diversity of perspective which is why we need to have better instrumentation across our environments so in a, in an automated effective and efficient fashion we can understand, what the attacker's goal would be, and we can and and understand the attack path that exists, so that we can actually then go look at that quote-unquote vulnerability relative to the exploitable path to the significant event. And 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 you you hit it right on the the head. It, the context matters, and and um, missing context means that we're going to have uh, um, an elusiveness to the truth of what's occurring, or what could occur, and what actions that we can actually do to manage and mitigate those risks, and 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 then go okay broadly. Then time to context is also critically important because the faster we can get that context. And know where we need to take action. In some cases, it might not be to patch the system. It might be to take two or three other actions in the infrastructure that breaks the attack path that leads from a point of compromise to you know the catastrophic event.
0: Right. Which is a a good segue because the, the the other thing I wanted to touch on was you you had alluded to, um, you know, security vendors will continue to sell you tools that might not be the right tools because they have a vested interest in generating revenue, which is true for any, any company. And, and the thing is I I've, I've witnessed it firsthand cause I've been at, you know, uh, cybersecurity companies where even as they have developed themselves, better, newer, like more cutting edge solutions. And they want to roll those out there's always this internal struggle with sales where they're like, yeah, but w- you know, we, we, we're, we're still churning renewals on our endpoint protection product, you know, and, and we're over here going, okay, but you know, we've now, now we're doing, you know, MDR or whatever, we're going bigger than that. And they're like, yeah, but we need to keep selling this. And from the CIO CISO perspective, I'm reminded of there's a a, a a story I had heard back when I was in sales and and listening to Zig Ziglar where he talked about uh, uh, you know the 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 young couple and the and the wife's making a ham and she cuts the ends off the ham and the husband says well why are you cutting the ends off the ham she's like I don't know my mo- my mother always did that that's just how you make a ham and he said I don't think so so they called the mom they said well why do you cut the ends off the ham and she said well my mom did it that's just the way it's done that's the way you make a ham. So they called the grandmother and they said well why did you cut the ends off the ham she said well our oven was only so big we had to cut the ends off the ham in order to make it fit and you know so that whole story is just saying look you're just doing what the what was previously done because it was previously done and you're not actually stopping to think about okay is that still the right thing to do and i feel like that that applies to a lot of the legacy tools like the things that that i was deploying when i was in the trenches in 2003, four, five, six, of just antivirus on the endpoints, and you know I've got to my firewall, I've got a spam filter, um, you know maybe some intrusion detection, intrusion prevention type tools running, and it's like, you know those things served a purpose then, but they don't really fit now, at least not without something to tie them together, something to weave them all together, because you need the you need the bigger picture, and I think and I feel like. Each one of those tools, uh, and I, you know, I've used this recently, is the you know the hammer and nail analogy. You know, it's like your antivirus software only knows how to see viruses. Everything, everything is a virus, or it's or it's not a threat. Um, and and each tool kind of has its own biased perspective, and so you need you need an overarching tool (laughs) that can see and connect the dots and say, okay, yes, but if you take this and this and this, and then we can see the whole attack chain and and, and tie it back to here, you know? And so it's like a very long-winded way of saying, yeah, we need to figure out how to get corporations, how to break the cycle of just renewing antivirus endpoint protection, because that's what you've always done.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's a whole mess of categories. There's, uh, you know, and again, legacy tools, legacy, perspectives. Uh, and then to some extent, I, I experienced this at, at um, silence as well. Compliance regimes in many cases, also perpetuate a dated architecture a dated uh, approach to controls. Right? I even I've seen it multiple times, you know, it's, you know, how often do you update your data definition files? I'm like, that is an insufficient flawed control. Signatures yeah, you can show that they block some things, but you have to have had somebody's had to experience pain and an issue before you can write a signature. And there's so many different ways around it. Um, you look at things like DLP. DLP is also a flawed control. It doesn't work. It doesn't prevent data loss from a malicious insider, and it doesn't present prevent data loss from an external threat actor on threat agent. Why? Because it's signature based and you know, they can get around it. If they got into your systems, they can steal the technology regardless of a DLP. The only thing that's good for is keeping a non-malicious user from making a mistake in handling of the data. Um, You know, so we have all of these approaches that are just flawed in their architecture, flawed in in their ability to control for risk. That's also why since I left Intel, I've spent more time with innovative uh, security companies. Why? Because again, the entrenched, Big players, they have a profit motive. And if they can sell for a decent margin something that works and keep you hooked on it, they don't have an incentive to, you know, only do incrementalism um, to the control. Mm. And in and again, computing's been growing exponentially for decades, right? And what does that mean? That means the attack surface has been growing exponentially. What did we see, as you were mentioning in the news? We see exponential growth and in, in in the exploitation of issues. And we've been approaching our controls linearly um, with a lot of incrementalism. And, and that's also creating this risk gap um, you know that that I've seen and experienced and I've been trying to address in the programs that I've run, but also in the companies that I've I've joined and in the companies that I advise that are really trying to transform you know an approach to control in a way that that delivers a real business outcome for folks
0: um, okay uh, i'm going to shift a little bit but uh, it kind of ties back to where actually where you started you, you, when you were talking about you know your time at intel and, and 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 things like that and the perspective on the increasing risk of nation states and so now you look at where we are now. Um, You know, we're in this sort of, you know, cyber cold war with with Russia and China or at least Russia and Chinese. Based (laughs) attackers and then we can, you know, we can have a whole debate about how 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 connected they are actually with the government. Um, But, you know, but that's going on. And so so nation state attacks are a bigger deal. and it's been obviously a huge topic of conversation this year um because you know we had the dark side attack against colonial pipeline we had the revel attack against jbs uh meatpacking both of them based out of russia um you know we've had the uh, the hafnium attacks uh that were exploiting the microsoft exchange server vulnerabilities out of china and you know so when Biden went and met with the the you know G seven or whatever. You know that was a primary topic of conversation was how do we how do we deal with this? You know what what are we what are we what is our response? And um, like you and I were talking about a little bit before we started, but right now today, uh, you know Biden has called a meeting with a bunch of uh, you know tech CEOs. There's infrastructure CEOs because there's some oil and gas in there. There's some like municipal water treatment uh people in there or something i mean it it's a pretty big cross section um and they're there to ostensibly discuss these issues these challenges and figure out okay well what is that what do we do as a cybersecurity industry and what is the public private partnership in this how do we make that work um but then the broader question becomes you know, can we make that work? Because, you know, like like you had mentioned before we started recording, you know, going way back to uh, uh, Bush Jr. Uh, when he, you know, made Richard Clark his uh, cybersecurity czar, they've had the role, but it's, it's similar to, uh, uh, oftentimes it seems similar to the way many companies treat the CISO, which is I'm going to hire this person to be kind of a figurehead, and not really give them the latitude or the budget to actually do the job I'm tasking him to do. Um, But then I'm going to hold them responsible as the scapegoat when things go wrong. And I, you know, I I remember there being like a series of people resigning from this role, you know, at the federal level because they're like, okay, well you hired me to do a job, but you won't let me do the job. Um, So the question becomes, okay, so you, you have all these CEOs, they go sit down with Biden, they come up with a plan, but, then what? You know who has the who has the actual authority and budget to make the plan happen?
1: Yeah, you know, again, as we were chatting a little bit before we we started this, and I'll again share my perspective on it. I'd say, by and large, for the past few decades, the cybersecurity agenda um, at, at that kind of public policy level, and and the various administrations over the past couple decades hasn't. Shifted that dramatically. Um, you know, some of the core tenets of of what uh, Richard Clark and and um, the the Bush administration had started doing in two thousand one, two thousand two. Um, by and large, there's just been delta things to it. The you know, I'm supportive of the Biden administration approach. I think you know the people they have um, put in key roles. Uh, um, Chris Inglis, you know, former de- deputy director of the NSA, and who um, has been at the the NSA at all, well and and was put in place, uh, you know, to help uh, do some look at things post solar winds. Um, very very smart people, really know what they're doing. Have an action oriented approach. Um, but getting back to this meeting, uh, you know today with with a variety of companies, I think it's good that those meetings occur. The question is, what's the outcome of it? it At this point in you know a, a little bit of a um, jaded perspective, I've seen these type of meetings before. I've helped prep executives to attend them, and in some cases, I've been in the gallery. In, in some of those things, or the side meetings that happened before and afterwards. And, and by and large, not much changes. So, you know, you got to look at it and go, is it, is it useful to get people on the same page and talking? Yes. But most of those organizations are prepped by their public policy team, they're prepped for their own motivations as to what they want to see happen or not happen to protect their profits, protect their, uh, minimize their liabilities. And, uh, you know, by and large, they have that perspective coming in, as they should as corporations. Um, and so unless something substantial comes out of it, like a new executive order that actually moves the needle, and I've been supportive of the ones that have come out recently at the Biden administration, or we start taking real legislative action on things that are gonna make a difference— like holding companies who create technology accountable to having proper controls to minimize vulnerabilities in technology, Um, also have legislative action to hold organizations who operate technology accountable for um, the integrity of those systems. Again, you can eliminate risk, but people are fundamentally failing to do the right things the right way. It, you know, it, it drove me nuts when the Colonial Pipeline CEO um, said in their testimony that that, that ransomware occurred because of a, um, an exposed um, password and the lack of MFA. I go, in what world does that one thing create that type of catastrophic event? That's ridiculous. Right. Right. Um, you know, so we've got to stop making these simple statements that that confuse the reality of what occurred. That may have been the initial point of compromise, but there was an attack path within the company was exploitable that led to that issue. So let's go stop focusing on the simple aspects of vulnerability and let's go do the hard work of what we should have been doing for the past couple decades. Where are we exploitable and what actions can we take to minimize that exploitability to prevent the material and significant events that are causing harm to our organizations, harm to our customers and societal harm?
0: Yeah. I, uh, one of the things that I, I always find, uh, humorous slash frustrating, is, you know, anytime there's an attack, when it makes headlines, there's a default knee-jerk public relations response before they even know. Like, they haven't even done the investigation. They don't actually know what was attacked or how it happened. But they've already issued a statement saying that it was uh, a sophisticated, advanced, persistent threat from a nation-state attacker you know and, it's and perfect
1: all perfect way to deflect liability
0: it well it sounds impressive but in the end my philosophy is more like okay but you still have to defend against that like okay that's the world we live in you you will face sophisticated attacks you will face advanced persistent threats you will face nation-state attacks so defend against them that's not an excuse that's not an excuse to get compromised
1: in most most of those quote unquote, sophisticated attacks, the initial entrance point was not that sophisticated.
0: right. They very the
1: sophistication rarely- was the speed with which they moved through the attack path in the exploitable pivot points in your company. That's where the sophistication comes through. Um, in many cases. And and like I said, it drives me nuts um to hear all that stuff. Because I, I would prefer us or the people we, we get enamored. Well, was it Russia? Was it China? I'm like, look, the threat actor is not a controllable variable for me as a chief information security officer, chief security officer. I can't control the threat actor and threat agent. The only thing I can control is aspects of vulnerability. And where there's those pivot points of exploitability. Those are the only things I can control. And and by focusing on who done it, yeah, that's interesting. And it catches a lot of press and, and all that stuff. But I go, that's the yeah, nation's the nation state law enforcement intelligence agencies to focus on that. My job is to manage um the risk, and the only way in which I can manage the risk is by having the appropriate controls in place to manage to some level of vulnerability and have the appropriate understanding of where I'm exploitable from something that's meaningless, a random endpoint, to the catastrophic material event that would harm my organization and my my customers or perhaps society. That is my job.
0: And, yeah, you know, but to, so, to bring this back to this uh, this this Biden uh, conference today, this meeting, um, I do think, in say, the last five years ish, that the landscape has changed. I feel like when when Sony got hit and we attributed it to North Korea, um, but it was still sort of like that's Sony's problem. You know, like there was there was a distinct separation from what the NSA was doing and and how the government protects itself and then private organizations. And I I, I feel like there wasn't as much. Cooperation or. You know, the federal government didn't feel any responsibility uh, to to sort of safeguard or help out private organizations. And now the way attacks are happening. you know, I because I, I, I've also talked with you know many companies or the smaller companies who are like, oh, I'm not worried about that. Like I I'm I I'm not Lockheed Martin, I'm not Raytheon, I'm not the Pentagon. I, I'm not worried about nation state attacks. And I'm like, okay, but that's not really the way the attacks work in a lot of cases. Like you know, they're they're looking for any attack vector, and you're you know you as Joe Blow company might be the way in because if you've got a trusted relationship with. Home Depot and Home Depot has a trusted relationship with the Pentagon for some reason, they can get there. Um, so, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, on the one hand, there are some aspects of the landscape that have changed, and some of that's the explosion of technology and the usage models occurring. But what you just said actually isn't a landscape change. It's actually the fact that people were misperceiving the risk. This game was already afoot. And people, getting back to my my initial comments of the misperception of risk, people were misperceiving the risk issues. And so therefore didn't properly plan and prepare for them. Okay. And that's not a landscape shift. That's people weren't doing their job. Our job is to contemplate risk, right? And and think about ways to manage it, and mitigate it. Just like I I've said very bluntly to folks who said, "Who could have thought a pandemic would occur?" Well, let's see. That was a known certainty that it would occur at some periodic level. I was working on Intel's pandemic response in 2002. Shame on you if you didn't contemplate that that would occur again at some point. And shame on you if you didn't have the proper um, mitigation in place to manage through it. Our job as risk managers. We fail when we are not future casting the thing that could bite us in the ass and then doing what we can to manage and mitigate those risks. It's not that you can eliminate it. And you might not even be able to prevent it but if you haven't at least contemplated it you're you're going to be flat-footed when it comes to detecting and responding to it
0: okay that's fair but what are your thoughts on trying to think of a, a a situation i mean even even you know jbs you know meatpacking i mean like it's not on the one hand, I mean, there's a debate to be made. I, I, I wouldn't think of it offhand as critical infrastructure, but there, uh, but th- there's a, de- there's an argument to be had of what well, you're disrupting the supply of food. That was a, that was a significant source of food. But it's yeah, so, so,
1: so it, it's funny that you mentioned you mentioned it. So, uh, an uh, an example that I've used in a lot of public speeches for a decade is an attack on the food and beverage industry. Because again, over a decade ago, I was having dialogue with peers um, when I was at Intel on how to have a conversation with your board on risk. And there was 10 or 12 people around, none of them for the tech industry, some financial sector, some consumer and retail and, and stuff. There's a couple of food and beverage and one of the peers, and I won't name them, It's like, Malcolm, you got it easy. You're in the tech industry, they understand this stuff. Uh, my CEO and board doesn't care about cyber risk. And you know, again, while I was still at Intel, it may not have been 10 years ago, seven years ago, but still, cyber risk was on a pretty brisk pace still back then. And, and I'm like, well, that's a problem with you, not a problem with your board. So we end up in a bit of a, an argument. And I knew all these folks. And I'm like, look, let's just pause the arg- discussion for a moment. What's, what could cause an extinction event for your business? What What is a such a substantial risk issue? Ignore cyber. What's the substantial risk issue that you have to spend a uh, billion dollars in 10 years to recover the brand, or you're potentially going out of business? And they're like, well, that's that's easy. Is the lettuce tainted with E. coli, or is the hamburger meat? I said, OK, food safety, your food and beverage industry, number one business risk. Yes. OK, great. I said, what's your your problem having a cyber discussion with your board? And you're like, what do you mean? And I went to a board and I drew a supply chain. I said, do you own the slaughterhouse? No. Okay, so freight on board from there to point of sale. Like, yes. I said, how do you know that the food is safe? cow has an RFID tag on its ear. It's got dates and times of antibiotics, feed, birth date, all that stuff. It gets slaughtered. Half a cow gets wrapped probably in plastic. Stuck in a box, RFID tag, barcode, flows through there into a truck that has a refrigeration unit, industrial control system, a a GPS tracker in the truck. It's like it goes into the store and I I walk through the whole thing. I was like, how do you know your food is safe? So the only way in which you know your food is safe is the flow of information from the slaughterhouse to the point of sale. Go back to the risk equation risk is a function of threat, vulnerability, but more importantly, exploitability and consequence. I said, do we think there's an animal rights whack job activist out there that would wanna save 10,000 cows tomorrow? Everybody raises their hand. I said, so threat is certain. So we know the consequence, somebody could die. What's your cybersecurity program for your food safety data? The person looked at me and they had no flipping idea. Shame on you. I've been using that example for years. And I've never worked in the food and beverage industry. I just look at it and I go, what is the preeminent risk? Once you start thinking about that, then you can start creating the direct and indirect cyber-related events that could contribute to that. That's how, as a finance guy, I started tying the aspects of enterprise risk that Intel had and how cyber would directly or indirectly contribute to it. And what I saw from 2002 at that time, the Enterprise Risk Map, I'll be directionally correct, had 10 items on it, and there's maybe three that had direct or indirect uh, cybersecurity-related stuff. When I, my last year at Intel, that Enterprise Risk Map had 16 items on it. And guess what? 12 or 13 of them had cyber-related direct or indirect contributions to those enterprise risks. I go, that's a failure of the people who've been managing um, information risk to do their jobs.
0: Right. Um, so two things. Number one, I was going to say, it is actually fairly impressive to me uh, as, a, as a consumer that when they do find, hey, we've, you know, we, we detected there's E. coli in this lettuce, that they are able to say, okay, but that lettuce came from that farm and, and, and the the lettuce from that farm went to these distributors. And so they're able to like pinpoint, you know, which lettuce to pull off the market.
1: But, but imagine an integrity attack and I shut off the uh, refrigeration unit in the truck as it's driving and then send false information that it's actually cold, let it spoil and go bad. And then I turn it back on before it gets there and then people eat it and get sick. Right. Or I manipulate the data, right? So you could do an integrity attack across that supply chain of food safety data and kill people.
0: Right. Well, and so the other thing I was gonna say is using that 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 analogy sort of and, and for other companies to to consider the broader risk, you look at what happened with SolarWinds and with Caseya, and and I think a lot of companies were caught Flat-footed, it never—it just didn't really occur to them to think that oh, the tools that I'm just using, <laughs> that I'm just downloading updates and 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 have access to all of my servers might be compromised.
1: I, no, you're exactly right. I, I was on a variety of calls with a, a bunch of peers when SolarWinds um, broke. Well, I think it was on a Friday, and I was in calls with them a little bit over the weekend, but Monday and Tuesday. And I was—again, I'm harsh on on people in our role. Um, a lot of people did a lot of good things, and I know I'm overcharacterizing this, but I, I, I frankly was appalled by some organizations who didn't even know if they had solar winds in their environment. Um, and then I was further appalled by a few peers who, who said that previous to that, solar winds was considered a low-risk capability. I'm like, in what world is a systems management tool that's privileged access to your infrastructure potentially low risk?
0: I mean, that makes no sense. Yeah. Well, and on, on a semi-related note, there was the story that broke last week or whatever about uh, uh, BlackBerry divulging you know, the flaws in the QNX system, and they actually said you know, according to the statement to the to the to the, the, to the federal uh, you know government, we don't actually know <laughs> where this product is in use. Like we sell it to OEMs, OEMs sell it to other people. we're we're not tracking it. We can't tell you where this where this software is. Well,
1: that I actually totally understand, having come from the tech side and stuff like that. And again, I'll go back to you know a privacy related item. You know, It was, I think, 2005-ish that Intel had a privacy issue uh, related to processor serial numbers because we were wanting to put that in place so that we had that traceability for valid reasons to, to help OEMs and customers do better asset management and stuff like that. And it created a massive privacy kerfuffle that Intel was – um able to uh understand where all of its processors were so i I get how it particularly even more so in a distributed supply chain on the software side particularly once you sell it you don't know exactly where it's in use i mean it just like you know and, and again i don't think it was anything complicit or negative you go back during you know the early days of the afghan and iraq wars there was processors um, used in in IEDs, improvised explosive devices um, from various manufacturers. Why? Because somebody could go get an old 15-year-old PC that was bought on a recycle thing that went through here and there and everything else, and somebody popped the processor and a few things and and cobbled it together into a physical um, device that would create harm you know, you can't necessarily control once you sell things, the full extent of where it's used and how it's used.
0: Right. Actually, I, 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 I need to put that in context on, on BlackBerry's behalf too, because I believe it was in relation to them initially saying they did not want to publicly disclose. They wanted to just reach out Privately to the affected part, you know, basically just send out send out memos to customers to say, hey, look, there's there's this issue with QNX, you should update. But then, but then had to come back and go, actually, we can't do that because we have no idea. Like all we can do is, you know, we we can only send memos to the companies that bought from us, but we don't know what happened after that. And I think that was part of the decision for announcing publicly, if I if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, I read a few of the articles. It, it's it's again. Vulnerability disclosure um, is a careful mixture of art and science and ethical responsibility. And you know when you do it, how you do it, who you do it to, what the timing of that stuff is. In some cases, where it's technology that's used in, in um, sensitive areas like critical infrastructure or the defense um, or you know the government and military. There's also special things that you need to do to to manage that because if you went too big, too fast, too public, you might actually create more harm. And right. so there's there's like I said, having had responsibility for that stuff. It's it's a mixture of art, science, and ethical and moral responsibilities um, that people need to navigate in terms of um, you know how they approach that to to do it the right way. To protect everybody to the greatest extent
0: possible, right? Because I, I know from the the stories that they said that you know QNX is also it's it's in use in some some way shape or form on the International Space Station, and it's like all right, well you don't want to announce you know, you need to have that you need to have your patch ready you need to have your patch deployed <laughs> before you publicly announce <laughs> that <laughs> QNX is vulnerable on the space station
1: yeah, I don't know if that's the that's the case, but yeah, it, exactly the, those the, the, that's the calculus that you need to do to really figure out the appropriate way to 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 walk a path. Um, you know because if you don't do that, you might actually be creating more uh, substantial and or acute harm. Um, you know, but it it's it's just you know, the nature of the beast of managing these things.
0: All right well, I want to um kind of wind things down, but let me just give you uh, a, a chance to you know, is there you know, a question you wish I would have asked or any parting thoughts or if you you know want to put a, a plug in for epiphany?
1: Yeah, you know, um thanks for that. I, I think we covered a lot of ground and I think you you've uh, asked a lot of um, questions and and uh, and I think we covered most of the things I you know, as I mentioned before i, I I spent and have spent my time since Intel joining companies that I believe technically can make a difference in terms of how we're approaching controls. Um, Epiphany is no different than that. And I'm as excited to have joined Epiphany as I was when I joined Silence. I think the opportunity to redefine how we're we're approaching certain aspects of controls or environment and transform our approach to risk management is substantial. So, if you have any interest, you know, uh, check us out at EpiphanySystems.com, or you know, ping me on LinkedIn or Twitter, and uh, happy to have a chat on it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Take care. Hey, thanks, Tony. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, Please go like our Facebook page and follow at techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. Let me know if you love it. Let me know if it sucks and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what, uh, questions that you'd like to see answered in future posts.